Before I read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Oh Lord God, you have in your word made known to us all the riches of your kindness and glory in Christ Jesus. And we know that if we were to all at once behold that glory, it would, it would be more than we could handle. And so we pray, oh God, that you would give us what we can handle by the help of the Holy Spirit, that, that we would receive some refracted beam of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ this morning, and that it would leave our hearts in awe of our great Savior. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take out your copy of God's Word, if you would. Turn with me to John chapter 3. We've been studying John's Gospel for several months now. We come to Jesus' teaching on the topic of the new birth, or what we refer to a lot of times in the church as regeneration, or being born again. Being a born-again Christian is not a subset of some specific tradition of Christianity. Being born again is what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have been born again. If you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. Now, the term born again in some ways has fallen on hard times in recent years. Oftentimes, it's associated with a a mantra for conservatism and hypocritical fundamentalism. But for the Christian, to be born again is synonymous with our salvation because it is the Holy Spirit who brings new life into our souls so that we not only know about Jesus, but we know Him and love Him. We're going to see that in Jesus' own words to this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader among a sect of Jewish elites known as the Pharisees. Commentators wonder whether or not Nicodemus' questions here were sincere or if they were intended uh, to sort of uh, show Jesus was wrong. We don't know, and it really doesn't matter. Jesus' answer to him is some of the most important teaching you and I will ever hear as he explains what it means to be born again. So listen now to the reading of God's word, John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I suppose 
that if we, you and I, were to have known this man Nicodemus, this man who comes to Jesus at night and asks these simple but profound questions, we would probably say, by all counts, he's a very good man. He, he was a Pharisee, which meant he was serious about God's law. He, he wouldn't steal. He wouldn't murder. He wouldn't commit adultery. At least, he would desire not to. Pharisees were so fastidious about the law that they would not carry more food than the weight of a dried fig or more milk than could be swallowed in a single gulp on the Sabbath day lest they violate the Sabbath. He was knowledgeable in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. He probably carried himself with a great deal of dignity, didn't he? But you know, all things considered, all of that's pretty easy to do. It's easy to give the impression that we have life all together, isn't it? Especially for an hour or two each Sunday. It's relatively easy to behave while other people are looking, isn't it? Now, it's one thing the religious leaders of Israel were very good at, looking good, at least outwardly. They did much of what they did in order to be seen. It, it was, it was it, it, the whole of religious life was loaded, I think even suffocatingly so, with outward religious duties, all of which were very impressive from the outside. And, and yet our Lord was so unimpressed with the Pharisees. Why? Because he knew, dear ones, he knew that it's possible to have all the right answers, to behave at least outwardly, in the right way, and all the while not know God. Now, that wasn't just true for the Pharisees. There's always a tendency in the human heart to want to have the right answers, to live the right way, to know a lot about the Christian life, and not know God at all. Do you know the difference in those two things? Knowing a lot about God, the, knowing about the Christian life, knowing how to live, and actually knowing and loving God? Those two things are worlds apart. You and I can have orthodox views. We can be busy with our Christianity. We can be well-respected and never encounter the living God. And we can do so and Christianity will feel like a great burden to us. Because we're always trying to look good enough, to have enough right answers, to keep up appearances, in hopes that with enough touching up, enough self-improvement, we'll be good to go. But the heart of the problem is that you and I need a new heart. That's why Nicodemus is really the perfect person to come to Jesus and have this conversation, because he had it all together outwardly. But inwardly, he was utterly confused. It doesn't seem that he knew God at all. Now, as you read through the Gospels, you see that he came to real and genuine faith. But at this point, he's utterly confused. And so Jesus says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus, there's your problem. You haven't been born again, and so there are these things that Jesus has been talking about. There's these things in the scriptures that Nicodemus has read, and it makes no sense to him. He's on the outside looking in, in a sense. And so he's saying, dear Nicodemus, for all of your believing and all of your behaving, what you really need is to behold God himself. You see him as something to be dissected and analyzed and appeased, but you've never met him as one to be loved and enjoyed in the core of your being. What you need, Nicodemus, is not behavior change. You need a heart change. You need to be born again. That's what our Lord is saying to him. Until Nicodemus is born again by the power of the Spirit, Christianity The law of God may be something to which he will submit, but it will not be something in which he will delight. It may be something he studies, but he will never adore the awesome glory of God until he's born again. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. It is a non-negotiable for the Christian life. And so as we think today about what it means to be born again, I I want you to see three things. First, the new birth is the Spirit's gracious work within us. Second, the new birth is the Spirit's sovereign work within us. And third, the new birth is the Spirit's transforming work within us. So gracious, sovereign, transforming Let's look at those. The new birth is the Spirit's gracious work in our hearts. Why must Nicodemus, this moral, learned, orthodox man, be born again? Because sin has so ravaged the human heart that we are naturally incapable of living to God on our own. And it's hard to tell if Nicodemus knows that deep down. Does he know something's not right with me and so I want what Jesus has or has he come to trap him? We we really don't know. There are many who love to discuss theology almost as a way to keep God at arm's length and have no real interest in it affecting heart and life. I don't know if that's how Nicodemus is, but I know that's how many people are who just want to talk about ivory tower theology, but when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of their heart, they want to keep God at arm's length. Nicodemus here, I think, is kind of like a patient who goes for an annual checkup with his cardiologist, says, Doc, I feel great. Everything's good. Give me a clean bill of health. And the doctor takes one look at him and says, we need to get you in for surgery right now. You need a heart transplant. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You need a new heart. Now, I don't want you to think I'm picking on Nicodemus. I respect him for having the courage and humility to come to Jesus and ask these questions. But Nicodemus' condition is the same as my condition apart from Jesus Christ and your condition apart from Jesus Christ. All of us, until we are born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, it's significant that the very beginning of the Bible introduces the sin problem into the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, you see creation, how how man is fearfully and wonderfully made, and he's made in the image of God, and God gives him the garden to enjoy, to be fruitful, to multiply. 
He breathed, he, he made them from the dust and breathed life into them. I shared this yesterday at Anne's funeral, but I think it bears repeating because we're so apt to forget it. He, he makes them so wonderfully and he gives them one rule, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they eat the fruit. And that's no big deal, right? No big deal. No big deal that the dust of the earth justified the command of the living God in an act of ultimate rebellion. And through their rebellion, death came into the world just as God had promised. Now, in God's grace, they did not die physically immediately. But the death they experienced was far worse than innate relationship with God that they had. This deep heart-level enjoyment of God that they had was ruptured. And this is the problem passed down through every generation of human existence. Our hearts, when we are born, our hearts are naturally separated from God. You know, we have precious kids in this congregation. And we have pregnant moms, and we can't wait to add more precious kids. But that is going to be the state of the heart of each of those children until they are born again, that even their hearts will be separated from knowing God the way they were designed to know Him. And the Bible diagnoses this as two problems. First, we cannot live to God as we ought because we are spiritually dead. And so, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so Paul's saying there, your natural condition is not that you are spiritually sick and you need help. Your natural condition is that you are spiritually dead and you need life. You need a new heart. And then the second way scripture diagnoses this problem is according to Romans 8, 7, we're actually hostile towards God. That's the natural state of man. We're not morally neutral. I know sometimes we think that, that the culture is sort of morally neutral, and then Jesus becomes some additional add-on that changes us towards God. But actually, the natural state of man, until we are born again, is that we are diametrically opposed and hostile to the God of the Bible. Do you realize that? that you can be orthodox in your theology, well-behaved in your life, and utterly opposed to the rule of God day-to-day -day in your heart. Now, it doesn't mean we were, we're all little Hitlers and Stalins, as bad, as wicked as we possibly could be. Now, God's restraining grace prevents that. We can actually be very religious people, willing to worship all sorts of gods as long as we get to custom design them to our preferences, make them in our image. Or we're willing to worship the God of the Bible, but we do so on our terms rather than His. And that's actually one of the chief evidences of our hostility towards God is that we're willing to substitute lesser gods and lesser forms of worship for the true and living God the way He has taught us to worship in Scripture. And so this is why Jesus is not impressed with Nicodemus' fastidious law-keeping, because it doesn't matter what He does outwardly, inwardly He needs a new heart. 
And that's what you and I need as well. If we would see the kingdom of God, if anything could possibly happen to set us on right terms with God, it cannot come from within us. It must come from above. And that's why Jesus says, you must be born again. That's the heart of God's grace here. You must be born again. The new birth is the Spirit's gracious work to a people who are utterly undeserving. Theologically, we call this regeneration, taking the dead heart out and giving us a new heart. Our need is not mere superficial self-improvement. We need radical renewal from the inside out that we can freely embrace God as He is and love Him or at least begin to love Him as we ought. And thankfully, what our souls need so badly, God in His grace provides so wonderfully. Now, Scripture gives high place to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. I read that promise in our Old Testament reading in Ezekiel 36. That's one of the leading promises of what the New Testament would bring, a new heart. What did he say there? I'll take out your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33, something else, very similar. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will transform them from the inside out. And so when Jesus says, Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying, Nicodemus, you've got the whole Old Testament. You should well have known this, that one day I would come to graciously give you a new heart. It shouldn't surprise you. And that's why the Lord Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, buddy, just try a little harder. Here's five steps and you'll see the kingdom of God. It, it would utterly burden and cripple Nicodemus, he tells Nicodemus about the Spirit's grace in giving us new birth. And indeed, the new birth is 100% grace. It is all God's doing. We are utterly undeserving of it. Let me ask you, before I go any further, have you been born again? Have you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, how do I know? How do I know if I've been born again? Do you love the grace of God? Do you, do you delight in the grace of God? You see your need of grace and you flee to Jesus for it. And his grace becomes the joy and rejoicing of your heart. That's how you know you've been born again. Years ago, before I became a Christian, I, I met a man who talked to me about the Lord Jesus. I appreciate his heart for evangelism. It was not perfect evangelism, but I like the way he did evangelism a, a lot better than a, the way a lot of us don't. His goal was really to get me to say the sinner's prayer, and the problem was, in my mind, I thought the sinner's prayer would save me. You know, it's been a great weakness in American Christianity for the last few hundred years is we focus on a moment of decision rather than a lifetime of discipleship. And there's disproportionate focus on that decisionism, which leads to a manipulative culture that seeks to, to have a dramatic conversion experience without a lifetime of following Christ. But the way you really know you've really had the new birth is not that you walked an aisle or prayed the sinner's prayer. 
but that the grace of God becomes radiant to you. It it transforms you. We're going to come back to that in, in just a moment, but we need to understand nobody has ever been saved by praying a prayer, by walking an aisle, by responding to an altar call. God may have used those as instruments in your salvation, but those things do not save you. We are saved by the grace of God as the Holy Spirit gives us new birth. And when He has done that work in our hearts, then we respond in faith. We respond in trusting Him. Do not get that out of order. Oftentimes it is taught, not in Scripture, but in pulpits, that if you are a Christian, you will be born again. Trusting Christ causes you to be born again. Jesus teaches it the exact opposite way. If you are born again, then you will come to saving faith. But it is all of grace. And the wonderful thing about this, and and I know there are folks in this room that struggle with assurance of salvation. When I understand that my salvation is all of grace from the very beginning, I will understand that it will be all of grace to the very end. There will never be a point in which my standing before God depends on me. And I am so thankful for that. It will always depend on who Jesus is and what he has done for my salvation, what he's done on my behalf. And what's wonderful about that is that the Father The Heavenly Father is so pleased with all that Jesus did on our behalf that when He looks upon us, He sees the righteousness of Christ covering our sin and shame. We sing this a lot, and it's so good. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. You know, if I forget that, my whole walk with the Lord becomes a joyless chore. It becomes filled with things I have to do to keep my salvation. Now, of course, theologically, we know that's not true, but do you ever feel internally that if you don't keep it up, grace will run out? Almost like grace is our training wheels. If you have ever trained a child to ride his bike, you start with the training wheels, but the goal of training wheels is that they come off one day and the child be able to do it on their own. Grace does not work that way. We are as dependent upon grace the day of our salvation as we are uh, the thousandth day of our salvation. It is all the Holy Spirit's doing. And if we forget that, The Christian life feels like just another task we have to do to keep it up. What do we do in those moments? We remember that our salvation is all of grace. Preach the gospel to yourself. Martin Luther had a great line where he said, when I look at myself, I can't imagine how I can be saved. Do you ever know that feeling? But then he says, when I look at Christ, I can't imagine how I could ever be lost. That's what it looks like when our salvation is in grace alone. And so when you struggle with that, look to him afresh and find new delight in him. Remember the grace he showed you when you didn't deserve it, and remember that that grace will see you through to the end. So this new birth is the Spirit's gracious work. The second thing 
is the new birth is the Spirit's sovereign work. How could sinners whose hearts were once hostile towards God, predisposed towards sin, ever begin to love and cherish this God? What has to change? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 4, it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can produce in ourselves. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says water and the Spirit, I think he's hearkening back to Ezekiel 36, which we read just a few minutes ago, about Ezekiel's prophecy of the new birth. It talks about being given a new heart and being sprinkled with clean water. And I think there's a physical reality of the the sacrament of baptism. There's a spiritual reality of being cleansed in the heart. And certainly we want to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized but water baptism is merely a visible sign of what happens when we're born again. The new birth is a divine work of the Spirit, giving new life and affecting radical change of heart in us, one that we cannot change ourselves. Jeremiah says Israel, he tells Israel, the leopard may sooner change its spots than we change our own hearts. That's why our Lord's analogy of birth is so significant. Certainly, birth points to the reality of new life, but also it's a picture of God's sovereignty. You know, there are many things that we can choose the time of in our lives, the date of. You can choose your wedding day. Expecting parents may have a date set on the calendar when they'll be induced or when they'll have a C-section, but nobody on the face of the earth has ever chosen their own birthday. I was born September 15th, not because I was looking at a calendar when I was in the womb, and I thought, that sounds like a great day to be born. I was born that day because of something determined outside of me. And just as we do not choose when to be born, Jesus is using the analogy of birth to show that we are not sovereign operators in our salvation. We're not even synergistic co-operators in our salvation. It is the sovereign work of the Spirit. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying here, everything about your salvation is the sovereign work of God's Spirit. As He takes that hostility and hardness and deadness of heart away from us and sovereignly replaces them with a heart that loves Him. If you love Jesus today, it is because he first acted upon you and gave you a new heart, took out that hostile old heart and gave you a new heart. And I know that is hard for our pride to come to grips with because we like to think we chose him. And yet, would we steal glory from God for what he's done in our hearts? Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that God might sooner forgive the sin of ascribing the creation of the heavens and the earth to an idol than that of ascribing the work of grace to the effort of the flesh or to anyone but himself. Do you get what he's saying there? To take credit for your own salvation is more asinine than taking credit for the creation of the heavens and the earth. 
There's no way that sinners could turn their own hearts to God unless He first gives us a new heart, and we can't engineer that. We can't prompt tactics that might cause people to make decisions for Christ as if we can manipulate them into being saved. It's not even charismatic preaching that saves people. What is the power of salvation in the operation of the Holy Spirit? Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of salvation. It's the Spirit who brings about new life. Now, as you think about this, this is just an early application. As you think about this, if salvation is the Spirit's work, then shouldn't we use the Spirit's means when we seek to see the salvation of others? Look with me at Romans 10 for a moment. Romans 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is talking about the message of salvation, and he says in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, well, how will they know? How will they hear? And he talks about God sending the word forth, and in verse 17, he says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. After Ezekiel gets that wonderful promise of the new birth in Ezekiel 36, God gives him a picture of this in Ezekiel 37, one that would increase Ezekiel's faith. He leads Ezekiel out to the valley of dry bones. This is a barren desert, and the only thing on the horizon is just a scattered mess of rotten, dried bones. There is no life whatsoever. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, only you know. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I'll lay sinews upon you and I'll cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. That is a picture of the new heart. And so what does Ezekiel do? He says, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them. And the story goes on. But dear friends, what you and I so desire for this world, that they would repent and believe the gospel, it does not come by might, nor by power, nor by human tactics, but by the Spirit, as the Word is proclaimed. And we ought to trust the Spirit's means in this. When we try to make disciples through any other means than what the Holy Spirit has told us to do, I believe we blaspheme Him. Now, let me speak again pastorally with you for a moment. I hope it is a great encouragement to you when you realize your salvation, if you're a Christian, it is the sovereign work of God. Let me read to you a little bit about this. Sometimes people think, well, God looked down the corridors of time. He saw me. He saw who I would be. He saw that I would choose him, and so he chose me. Listen to what Ephesians 1 says. Starting at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him 
before the foundation of the world. Not only does he sovereignly regenerate us, but he chose us for that regeneration before the foundation of the world. And what is so encouraging about that is that it means God loves us with a love that never began. Do you understand that, Christian? If you're a believer, he loves you with a love that never began. And you know what is so wonderful about a love that never began? It'll never end. It won't reach a point where God says, you know, I'm just tired of her. She just can't get it right. I'm done. She's no longer one of my people. No, what, what he began in you, he'll carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Let me show you that in a couple places. Look with me at Philippians 1. Paul is rejoicing in his relationship with the Philippians, and he says in verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. This is a section of what I preached yesterday at, at Anne's funeral. But listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God does not abandon ship with us. His purposes, he will see through because it is his sovereign work. The strongest believer struggles with sin and failure, sometimes leading to doubt and discouragement. We need encouragement, and it is not found in looking inwards. It is found in looking upwards and knowing that no one can pluck me out of my Father's hand. He began this work in you sovereignly, and he will carry it to completion in you as he conforms you to the image of Christ. That leads us to the third thing. This is the Spirit's transformative work. If you're listening carefully, here's what you've heard. Salvation is all of grace, and it is all God's sovereign doing. And so you might have the question, well, what's my role in it? What do I do for my salvation? We, we like that question. What do I contribute? The answer biblically is the only thing you and I contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And, and so if we were to stop here, you could rightly accuse me of preaching that God saves us by his sovereign grace, and now it doesn't matter how we live. In terms of our salvation, our justification, that is completely right. He saves us solely by his sovereign grace. But in terms of evidence that we have been truly born again, that could not be further from the truth. To be truly born again will lead to a radically transformed life. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. So Jesus first used that illustration of uh, uh, the analogy of new birth. Now he uses the, the analogy of the wind. 
We don't see wind. How do we know where the wind has been? We had a, a storm here a couple of months ago, and of course we couldn't see the wind, but when I came up to the church later that day, the sign was ripped off its, its hinges, trees were snapped in half, debris was everywhere. You can't see the wind, but you can't miss its effects. And Jesus is saying here, you can't see the Spirit, but you cannot miss His effects in your life. Where He goes, He goes with transforming power. Dear ones, there should be no question whether or not the Spirit has caused someone to be born again. We can't see it happen, but we will see the evidence. And contrary to what's so often taught today about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's presence isn't marked by loud, uncontrolled worship or speaking gibberish. The Spirit's presence is seen in a transformed life. Let me tell you four marks of a life that's being transformed by the Spirit. None of these, to be clear, none of them are the cause of the Spirit's work. They're the evidences of it. They're not the root. They're the fruit of the Spirit. First, where the Holy Spirit is working, He will bring conviction of sin. In John 16... Jesus is speaking with the disciples, explaining why he must go away that the Holy Spirit may come. And he says in verses 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So where the Spirit goes, there will be conviction of sin. There will be knowledge that I am a sinner in need of grace. Second, where the Spirit goes, there will be faith and repentance. When the Spirit causes a person to be born again, that newly awakened man is going to repent and believe the gospel. Before, though he may have been religious, he had no interest in God's saving grace. He was dead in his trespasses, but once the Lord gives him a new heart, a tender heart, the first thing he wants to do is repent and believe the gospel by the power of the Spirit. You know, this was, if you saw the He Gets Us ad campaign, it made a lot of news, it aired during the Super Bowl, and it was an effort in some ways to present the gospel. And, and, and I think it had good intent, but one of the things it lacked is that a major aspect of what Jesus came to do is not simply meet us where we are in our sins, but to pull us out of the pit and transform us through faith and repentance. And I think that's really what that ad campaign missed. It seemed to give the impression that Jesus saves us and then leaves us as we are, which could not be further from the truth. So the second is faith and repentance. Third, sanctification, holiness, growth in grace. So this person who perhaps never before cared about sin, at least not sin that nobody sees, sin in the heart, now has a burning desire to put sin to death and grow in grace. The Spirit's living in him, enabling him from the inside out to be transformed. See, what happens is when the Holy Spirit indwells somebody, when, they, when the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again and lives within us, the sincere Christian will grow to hate all sin, starting with our own. Most of us are good at hating other people's sin, but when the Holy Spirit is in us, 
We want to get this temple cleansed. We want to be like him. We want to be a good dwelling place for him. You know, sanctification, growth and grace is a slow, clumsy process, isn't it? And there are times where probably all of us, if we have any sense about us, will step back and say, am I really a Christian? I've been struggling for so long. Why am I not making progress in this area? Now, I will say, that's probably a pretty good sign that you're a Christian. Because if you weren't a true born-again believer, you probably wouldn't care if you're making progress in your growth in grace and progress in sanctification. So be encouraged, dear ones. Sanctification is not a lost cause. Look over at Romans 8 for a moment. Verse 11 is so incredibly encouraging. He says, Paul says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that is a powerful spirit, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Isn't that amazing to think? Our sanctification is powered from within by the Holy Spirit. John Newton says it wonderfully. Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, he was once a slave trader, came to saving faith. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's an important word for us to hear because many Christians have bought the cultural lie that when it comes to certain sins, we cannot change. And that is a denial of the Holy Spirit's work within us. I just want you to see Paul boasting for a moment in the way the Holy Spirit changed people. In 1 Corinthians 6, look over there with me. First Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this awesome line, Such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Paul's saying here the new birth is so transformative that it even changed some who were in the church of Corinth who had been practicing homosexuals. They have abandoned that to follow Christ. What a good word that is when a church culture in America is telling people that's just the way you're made. And that's the way you're always going to be. No, Paul says such were some of you. Just as some of you were once gossips. Some of you were once swindlers. But the Lord did a mighty work of change. When regeneration comes, when the new birth comes, our desires are changed so much that he sanctifies those things from us. Like Newton, we're not who we once were. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen overnight, but there will be progress in the Christian life. I mentioned that Nicodemus, he's absolutely puzzled here. Do you remember where we see Nicodemus again? I think in John 7, we see him defending Jesus, 
And we see him at the end of Jesus' life helping to bury Jesus. By all accounts, it seems he was a transformed man. Uh, I wonder if you are. There will be growth in sanctification where the Holy Spirit is. Fourth, we seek to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. This is the fourth mark of where the Holy Spirit is, is transforming us. We seek to keep in step with the Spirit. That's direct language from Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. That, that word keep in step means to walk in line behind a leader. Let's follow after him. So the one who is born again will seek to live by the Holy Spirit, obeying him as he instructs us in his word. We are not complacent about the Christian life, even though it is God's sovereign grace. We are not complacent about it. We seek to keep in step with the Spirit. Let me give you a clue here about something. I was utterly transformed when I heard J.I. Packer say this years ago. He said, do you know who the most miserable people in the world are? People who have been truly born again, but are living in a season of unrepentant disobedience to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is living within them, and He will give you no no comfort if you're living in unrepentant sin until you turn from it. And that is so incredibly gracious of Him. He will make us graciously miserable when we follow His step. Because as Christians, we cannot live in rebellion to the God who is living in us and enjoy it. And certainly there are the fleeting pleasures of sin, but there is no lasting joy in sin. And so as we keep in step with the Spirit, our joy is magnified and increased. Now, why does He do all of this? Why does the Holy Spirit do all this? Why does the Holy Spirit bear with us so patiently? Because He loves us. And it is His desire to make us more like Christ. That we would be what Adam and Eve should have been, image bearers of the living God. And as he transforms us to make us more like Christ, the glory of Christ Jesus is seen on the face of the earth. And the Spirit loves that work, and it can be painful at times as he cuts away that which doesn't belong in the life of a Christian. But be encouraged. It is proof that you've been born again. So as we get ready to close, let me ask you, has this happened to you? I'm not asking, have you had a conversion experience? Everybody in Beaufort at some point got saved, made a decision for Christ. I'm not asking you about a conversion experience because on the one hand, there are some very godly Christians in this room who do not remember a specific moment of salvation. But the Holy Spirit has undoubtedly caused them to be born again. And then there are others who when you say, are you a Christian? Yes, I got saved 40 years ago. But there has been no lasting fruit. The Spirit's purpose is not to get us to make decisions for Christ as if there's some cosmic scorecard, but to create in us disciples for Christ. Don't be deceived by a mere decision, but at the same time, don't be discouraged when discipleship is slow and clumsy. 
if you love Christ even this much, if you are convicted of sin, if, if you have faith evidenced through repentance, that is not your doing. It is God's work in you, and He who began that good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer. Oh Lord, this is a good word. We thank you for your scriptures that give us everything we need for life and godliness. Father, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room would be born again by the work of your Holy Spirit. Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I pray that you would draw everyone in this room by the power of your Spirit that we together with one voice may be able to stand in awe of your awesome grace.